Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, brought to you by Campaign, the advertising, media and marketing magazine. I'm Omar Oaks, media and technology editor. Later in this episode, you can hear my conversation with Jenny Bigham, founder of the Seven Stars Media Agency, and Scott Moorhead, founder of the Aperta Partnership Consultancy. We speak about whether media agencies need to sort out their conflicts of interest, and whether advertisers are getting a raw deal from how some of them operate. But first, to help me make sense of what's been happening in the United Federation of Adland this week, is Maisie McCabe, Campaign's UK editor. Maisie, how are you? Not bad. Is that a little nod to our missing US correspondent, missing Brittany dearly? Oh, oh you're you're reading too. You're reading too deeply into things. It's just uh, we're we're all united in the pursuit of creative advertising <laughs> excellence. And uh, Maisie, um, we're recording this amid fresh speculation that Publicist Group, owner of Such and Such, Elio Burnett, and other big agency names, that Publicist Group could merge with fellow French ad network Havas. Um, have you seen this? We've run a story on campaign this week. Uh, uh, both companies told campaign it had no comment on the rumours, which appears to have come out of France. But what does your gut tell you? Could this happen? So it makes me feel quite excited and also a little bit nostalgic, actually. We had lots of fun with the Omnipub kind of pubby com. We never quite decided on a on the best word when um, that's obviously when Publicist Group was going to merge with Omnicom. Um, and I think there's sort of probably a 10 month or so period um, where it looked like it might happen. And then it didn't. And one of the main reasons was the kind of cultural differences between the two companies. And obviously you would think potentially, given that both... Um, Havas and Vivendi and um, Publicis Group are French businesses. There might be rather less of that between the two. I mean, it's obviously an interesting time for Publicis. They're sort of seen to have done relatively well last year. And um, and obviously Gideon, our esteemed colleague, had a story about private equity approaching them. So it's it's an interesting time. Indeed. Uh, merger story is obviously very interesting. Um, as you say, Maisie, um, this is not the first time in recent months that Publicis has been the subject of market speculation in january um there was talk that they held talks of a private equity investor about a potential sale pointed to cvc as um, the suitor if i can put it that way but um, the story made clear that no formal negotiations or discussions were underway and of course today both havas and publicists deny well they rather they mysteriously say no comment um so we'll, we'll keep not tabs on that um vivendi uh the owner of havas um part of you know the the whole bollere machine is interesting because of um, their ownership of universal music group and we ran a story not so recently not so long ago i should say on campaign that um havas has basically um restructured its media operation and entertainment is very much a part of that and it seems that they're an interesting company because more than the other major ad companies they do have this entertainment offer and there are things that they can leverage in a certain way and perhaps that's attractive to publicist group do you think yeah maybe i mean if you look at kind of uh, both the media and the kind of creative agencies in london have certainly um made good progress i think i think you know it was difficult for everyone last year but i think havas media group seems to have had a relatively good fist of it and obviously um havas london you've got xavier and vicky kind of leading the charge there and did some really interesting things I think Publicist Group is actually in quite a strong position. So the question is, is there an appetite for change at the top? Is it that the family are looking to kind of get out potentially while while the business is in a good position? You know, I can't imagine that Artur is the sort of person who's looking for a merger and, and an end to his reign. I can't say that for sure, but um, but I'd imagine he, you know, he'd like to have a, a you know, a bit longer in the job personally. But I guess you never know what's on there 
horizon it could be that he gets a bigger job in vivendi which might in itself be be an interesting thing yes uh you would presume i guess wouldn't you that yannick bolleré son of vincent bolleré would uh would be, would run the shop if the this uh this merger were to happen i'm loving your accent here omar i'm trying extremely hard <laughs> very remember, good listeners may remember vasey was the one who got me on um, the french tv show uh call my agent or 10% as it's called in France and uh, um, I, I did live in Paris for a short time when I was a student and uh, loved it and brought back fond memories. Do you watch it with the subtitles off? Of course not, my French is no in it like it. Yeah, that would uh, be too difficult for me. Um, let's talk about um, ad companies closer to home, shall we? Let's flying the jack, flying the jack, flying the, flying the union jack is WPP, of course, uh, which is still the biggest of them all. Mark Reed, CEO, has been talking to Campaign uh, off the back of their latest financial results. Mark Reed said that the ad industry spends too much time worrying about media targeting and optimization, and not nearly enough about the creative message. It must have equal weight. Um, Maisie, what do you think? I mean, he, this is in the context of, I guess, some online advertising and creative personalization. So, what's he saying? Media targeting. We focus too much on, you know, obviously the privacy issues surrounding the death of third-party cookies ad bombardment all these issues but are we actually talking about the creative process you know all the wonderful things you can do between targeting different people and adapting your creative message do you, what do you think do you think there's enough creativity good things happening in online advertising uh well i think it's interesting because my presumption and assumption is that a lot of people will have read that headline and been like well speak for yourself mate um, because <laughs> I'd imagine, you know, it's sort of it's reflecting it's reflecting kind of where WPP is. I respect the fact that they've been public about how their um, creative agencies have done, and you know they obviously put out a statement in December that we picked up on, um, which was saying that all of their kind of five ad creative networks had declined in the past five years, and they've obviously gone through um, you know a period of, of merger um, and realignment to kind of help combat that. Um, I would have thought there's a lot of people in the industry that spend the vast majority, if not all of their time, depending on their role, on making creative ads. Whether enough of that time is being done on the types of ads that are being served programmatically online, I don't know. I certainly think that there is a lot of work and improvement that can be done on that type of advertising. Um, And maybe that's what he meant. Maybe he was talking about people who work on digital advertising specifically in that case but i you know i do i do feel that lots of people you know already spend a lot of time on creativity i think more people could do and and kind of pushing forward on more creative inspirational innovative ideas can only be a good thing i wonder to what you said right at the start about um you know look at yourself mate um whoever you put it i wonder if that's what he's doing through uh the medium of campaign whether he's actually sending a message to agencies that you need to step up your game do you think he might be doing that yeah maybe i mean i'm sure he's you know he's a really accomplished leader so i'm sure he's kind of aware and has of the audience he's speaking to both internal and external and and yeah kind of the way you talk about your business publicly is obviously as valuable and useful for the people working for you as the people 
you know, outside of the, your business. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation I had with um, Zaxis uh, of all companies, uh, Nic- Nicolas Bidon, again, another French person. Uh, <laughs> this is the Zaxis Global Chief Executive. Um, he spoke to me uh, last June for a story we did about the launch of Zaxis Creative Studios. And this is where within WPP, they're going to work with creative and media agencies. It's going to be staffed by designers, interactive developers. They've got a global project lead and they're essentially going to make assets with an AI powered planning and optimization thing the best word i can think of to describe that <laughs> they've probably got a longer word than that hey? yeah uh, an asset um the aim is to maximize the impact of a campaign's creative idea make it more efficient make it more effective um address at, at the time they said that there's this gap in the market for fusing creative and media for digital ads it's an interesting play but it sits outside of creative agencies and you always wonder with something like that well okay are you actually going to get buy-in from the creative agencies is there the capability to your point of actually you know are there people there are a lot of people who kind of working on creative campaigns but are they doing it with a with a programmatic online advertising mindset i suppose the jury's still out do you think broadening out beyond wpp that anyone's doing that particularly well i don't know off the top of my head in terms of kind of interesting creative digital work yeah just doing things in a different way i i i still wonder whether all these things are still really siloed and whether and i wonder whether if anyone cracks it it might not come from the creative agency but maybe the media agency yeah i mean the one the campaign that springs to mind it's a bit of an old one is the economists digital advertising um, has been very good they were quite early in kind of doing sort of contextual ads mm, around yes. news stories and things won quite a lot of awards some of that work was done through proximity some of it in-house I think you know to be honest I mean I'm sort of being a bit glib about other people being more creative but actually I mean there is a fair point when you're talking about digital advertising specifically they're often not that creative um, and I'm sure there's there are improvements to be made. The question is, are you going to get, you know, there's a different sort of creative who's going to get excited about delivering lots of different versions of the same ad via a, a sort of bio side platform. Yeah, which um, is annoying to say the least. Um, I can hear some listeners screaming at their phone or wherever they listen to this podcast right now, um, if they're particularly working for companies like uh, S4 Capitals, Media Monks, Jellyfish, you, you and Mr. Jones, um, you talk to these companies and they're very that their view is very much you know that they are leading the charge in terms of digital content production and hey and look get in touch let us know yes and uh, i'll refer you to it it reminds me of um david jones interview with him we did on the podcast last year where he was talking about the challenges he had at havas with trying to turn around you know legacy businesses and how you mr jones um just they're they're able to be a lot more nimble and uh, even just last week uh we wrote about is capital's latest financial results where despite the pandemic i think they still grew by 19% organic growth is still doing quite well. So lots to play for and Mark Reed obviously knows that. Um should we talk about an ad or two Maisie? Um what what caught your eye this week? Well, I mean I don't know about you but the sun is shining outside. Um it almost feels like springtime and um and we've obviously got started to get a couple of the kind of, you know, spring themed ads coming out and B&Q dropped over the weekend from Uncommon Creative Studio and it's a a kind of bright uplifting kind of film with lots of sort of bits of animation and and kind of growing plants promoting the plants that they sell at B&Q but obviously trying to do a kind of broader brighten the mood of the nation task at the same time 
Hunter. We didn't lose hope. We planted it. What do you think of it? It's a really nice film. It definitely gets me in the mood. I mean, it's not only just spring and things getting better on that front, but also just as we as we we're recording this um, just after the next phase of lockdown, where you can now meet up with six people in a park or you know do sports or fun things like that. And you, you d- it's definitely of a piece with the beginning of the the the, the unlocking and the prospect of a roaring twenties vibe coming back. And it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely good timing. I'd say that. Yeah, I, I imagine that's not entirely incidental. I would imagine that's you know part of the part of the brief yeah and it builds on um we we talked about this before on the podcast um this build a life campaign that bnq launched last year um also by uncommon of course um where they you know they had this ad which was highlighting the deeper meaning behind home improvements during the pandemic it's it's very much a well-established brand in this space it wants to advertise the sector as much as itself doesn't it? Do you do you do you feel like BQ has it has it changed perceptions in your mind? Has it has it done what they set out to do? Yeah, you know, I, I do think it has a little bit actually. You kind of I don't know, sort of seeing those the big kind of outdoor ads that that Uncommon made last year. They're kind of lots of orange, and I think I feel I did. Sorry, I should have. You know, I genuinely feel like I feel a bit warmer towards the brand. It's almost like advertising works. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. Um, they'll, they'll ban it. We've got um, a, we've got a you know scrap of a garden. Very glad we have one at all. But um, but yeah, we're not very good at looking after plants. So I can maybe I'll I'll aim for that this year. <laughs> keep something, <laughs> keep something going. Uh, we're almost out of time, Maisie. Just before we go, um, perhaps the next time we speak, we will have published our school reports which usually come out in April and is always eagerly anticipated by agencies in the UK. Uh, Maisie, of course, we, we can't talk about the scores before they're published in the magazine, but um, can you can you give any 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 general themes without naming names about things you've you've learned about the school reports process this year? Um, oh, Omar, obviously all the good stuff, I can't say. Um, we try to be fair and compassionate. It's obvious that some agencies have, despite the kind of the difficulties of last year really managed to find a space for themselves to kind of you know in some cases grow both in billings or staff um, and picked up new clients you know it was quite it was very hard for most people and most businesses Um, you know and obviously this time last year the kind of March April people were genuinely worried about whether they'd have a business so we've tried to kind of do the school reports with that in mind obviously you know, I feel a bit like the education secretary, but we have to be mindful of grade inflation. Um, and, you know, so we don't want people's scores, say, next year to look look bad because we've been over generous this year. But, um, but you know, we, we have tried to give everyone the sort of benefit of the doubt. Anyone who got through the year did an amazing job and we've tried to highlight the, you know, the best bits of everyone's year, whilst also making the point that, diversity and progress on diversity at a senior management level both in terms of gender and um, people from ethnic minority backgrounds is really important and it will be increasingly important moving forward definitely um but yes for more on that 
tune into um, the you can't tune into the magazine, but <laughs> pick up a copy of the magazine uh, if you're a subscriber. If you're not a subscriber, get on that. Um, the school reports will be in the April issue of campaign. Okay, Maisie, thank you very much. I'm going to let you go now. Um, thanks very much. And now to our conversation with Jenny Bigham and Scott Moorhead. And I'm joined here today with Scott Moorhead, uh, founder of the Aperto Partnership, and Jenny Bigham, founder of the Seven Stars Media Agency. And we're here to talk about, is the role of the media agency at a crossroads? And this comes from a piece that Scott and your partner, Andrew Mortimer, you wrote in campaign recently. Um, You say that um, there is a fundamental conflict of interest. Media agencies have to decide whether they are an agency independently advising clients on the best plans or if they are a media owner making their money from selling advertising space to their clients. So we'll, we'll get into all of that. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, but firstly, um, Scott, hello. How are you? Where does lockdown find you? Hello, Omar. Thank you for inviting me along today. Um, lockdown finds me in the pouring rain in Tooting today, but this will brighten my day. So uh, glad to be involved. Yeah, not, not not a day for a walk on the common today. And um, Jenny from the Seven Stars, uh, thanks very much for joining us too. Pleasure to be with you. And um, how, how's your how's your lockdown week going? Are you, are you having fun uh, yet another week working from home? Yeah, uh, fun, not really. Uh, having a good week though. We've, I've just done my first ever uh, clubhouse appearance, which was oh, wow. quite exciting. Um and uh, yeah, looking forward to this chat today. Good to hear it. What was your chat about? Uh, it was about collaboration and the importance of um, collaboration through, well, partly through the pandemic, but just in general, in terms of, you know, lots of the industry issues around, you know, higher aims around, I don't know, anything from climate change to DNI and how we need to work collectively together to, to achieve any of these bigger goals. Interesting. Yes, collaboration very much the theme for 2021. And of course, um, the Seven Stars. Um, I think you're the biggest of the UK independent media agencies. Um, so this is um, we're talking about a subject. This is um, of course relevant to you. Um, and we need to be careful and define our terms, I suppose, don't we, Scott? As we go along, that we're not talking about all media agencies when we're talking about some of these issues. But we'll try to be careful of that as we go along. Um, so you. And Andrew wrote this piece for us on campaign um, where um, you've talked about how agencies often can present themselves as a trusted partner of the advertiser, providing objective advice on how you know brands should plan and buy media. And that's good. That's what they're supposed to be. Um, but we also give to these other issues which could cause a conflict of interest um, and there's history behind this. So just explain for listeners who might not know about this. How has this come about? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Omar. It's, it's, it's sort of a it evolves from a question about what is a media agency and what is their role. So, yeah, absolutely, we believe, and I believe the industry believes, that the role of a of a media agency is to provide independent advice, guidance to their clients, the the advertisers. But unfortunately, um, in some of the holding groups, as I say, it's only in some of the holding groups, the practice of reselling media has become industrialised. So their job, in the, in, in the way that we understood it, was to buy media, but what you're finding now is they're actually reselling media and, and that creates a huge conflict of interest because you know what, what we wonder about is how any advertiser can have confidence in the transparency of recommendations that are being made on their behalf um, and as you, as you sort of put in your introduction you know it is true um, some of these agency groups particularly the sort of group trading functions where a lot of these products and activities occur should be classed as media owners far more than they are media agencies 
um, certainly in the way that we've always understood media agencies to operate in the UK and uh, and beyond. You know, the position is clear. You can't, how can an advertiser expect an independent recommendation when the buyer is also the seller? And what do you specifically mean by inventory reselling, reselling media? Give us an example of how an agency could be doing that. Well, it's it's, it's relatively straightforward in terms of the reselling Um but, but inventory reselling, or it has lots of names and, and different groups call it different things. But, you know, simply um, through a, a variety of different deal mechanics, there's, there's various different ways that this can occur. Advertising space is given from a media owner, and it can be in, in, in any channel. And then what the, the groups do or the proprietary products do is they bundle this media up into, into packages and uh, and simply market up and, and resell it and and it is marketed to clients as being the best option for them so it's as simple as that it's taking acquiring media at a given price or or through a given type of deal and then selling it at a, at a higher price than than it than it could be okay um jenny from the seven stars maybe you could provide some context for us i mean how widespread is this in media industry land and um, we had a piece on campaign recently by nick manning founder of manning gottlieb um media now manning gottlieb omd who um wrote about um the growth of inventory media training and it being a, a license for arbitrage as he says um it might appear more attractive to advertisers on the face of it but without transparency over the true nature of being what is bought for and what price it actually um could be the disadvantage to advertisers um how widespread is it and let me ask you bluntly does it happen in the seven stars so absolutely no it doesn't happen at seven stars and our business model is completely different so our business model is um agreeing plans with clients based on our market understanding our data our analysis of their audience based on the right um solution for that client and only at that that point do we then um, engage with uh, the media owners and then our trading team. And their job is absolutely to buy that plan for the best possible cost. And I completely agree with everything that um, Scott's saying. You know, there's a lot of chat about the agency business model is broken. Um, but the reality is now, I believe in a lot of groups, um, there are two business models at play and they're contradictory. So there's one business model, which is the the, the shop window, if you like, which is charging clients for strategic advice and data and tech and consultancy and making recommendations. And then the other business model, which is making money based on where you're spending um, your clients' money. And I think the real casualty for me in this is planning and client effectiveness, because I think if planners are you know, recommending one solution that generates cash to their agency's bottom line, and another solution which doesn't, or another solution that might include inventory that's already been purchased at that agency's risk, you can guess which which solution the the, the planner is going to be incentivized to to push towards their clients. And I just think it's a real shame because as media agencies, we've got the opportunity to be so much better. And you know the the landscape's so exciting now, right? There's so many opportunities. Digital media has blown our minds in terms of the opportunities and if we get the right model and have a single model there's a massive opportunity for media agencies to act as genuine client partners and neutral consultants what i don't understand about this scott is um didn't we have 
like, I think it was five years ago now, we had this big report in the US, didn't we, by um, the ANA, the Association of National Advertisers, where they were talking about what they called non-transparent business practices. Um, and, you know, we wrote about it in campaign and there was, you know, I think um, maybe even you um, commented for us off the back of it. And there was a lot of industry discussion about that. In light of that, how much progress has there actually been since five years since we seemed like we were first talking about it? I mean, across the sector, there's been there's been positive move forwards in, in some areas. Yes. But as a whole, I'd say we've moved backwards, certainly within the UK media industry. I think what, what that report did and what that highlighted was that, um, I guess, if you were going to go into the world of arbitrage, you just had to get more sophisticated. Um, you had to get your marketing better and you had to think of better models. Um, and so, you know, that's what we did. So, you know, arbitrage in the reselling media has always existed. Whether you look back to the world of out of home, where I think most agencies learned how to do it, through to the early days of programmatic training desks, through to where we are today, where, you know, it's the it's the video resellers and in linear television and and in pretty much every sector where you can you can now resell media. And what those groups have learned to do is create firewalls of audit, create products, great marketing, invest in in team and talent and adjust the way you do deals with media owners. So when I, when we say the word industrialized, we really do mean that because there are significant numbers of people employed in these groups that are here to only exist to, 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 to work these products and to uh, position them to their clients as the, the more effective option. And when it comes to inventory reselling, just to be clear, are we, are we talking about TV or does this impact other areas of media as well? So oh, so reselling of media happen, can happen in any channel. The, the thing to think about in the UK in particular is where is where is it scaled the most? So as I say, it, it has always existed in some of the, the, um, in, in some of the offline channels. It was obviously a, a huge part of early programmatic media and, and ad networks before that. But I think where it's really starting to scale is uh, the advent of uh, of the ability to do it both in broadcast television uh, and video, as well as continue continuation within the digital um, ecosystem. So not just the blatant reselling of of display space in, in its final form, but also when you work back into the ecosystem within the, the world of the SSP, where again things are happening all of the time. And. Jenny, I guess um, if we've been talking about this for five years since this ANA report, um, are you surprised or maybe not surprised? What's your reaction to when you reflect over the last five years if things have gotten better or worse? Um, is it what you expected? Do you think this is a natural evolution as the industry becomes more digitized, more sophisticated? Um, or do you think more should have been done to stop this happening? Look, I think absolutely more should be done because I feel that you know the agencies are missing out on their opportunity to really own an exciting future as businesses. And I think the clients are really the big losers here because they're missing out on the opportunity to buy the most effective plan that drives their business. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a massive shame and it has implications for media owners as well. I, having said that, I do accept that it's very, very difficult to unpick this trail. So it is difficult for an auditor, even a very sophisticated media auditor um, to really unpick this and, and to work on the client side for this. So um, you guys know PwC last year published their um, waterfall report that took them over 18 months with, you know, complete advertiser and ISBAR and agency support to do that. Um, 
you know, you, you simply couldn't do that on an ongoing basis. You couldn't, as an advertiser, you couldn't look at every single campaign that you've ever run in, in that level of forensic detail. So I think it's complex and it's difficult to unpick. Um, I think there is some good intent. I think, you know, you'd have to name check. I think Isbar have been stronger on this than they ever have been in the history of, of my career. So I think there has been some progress and I think there's, you know, it has bred, there is a new breed of super smart consultants, including Aperto, our friends at Aperto partnership, but there's a whole breed of super smart consultants who are, who are quite focused on this. And, you know, the mere fact that it is being discussed, it is being discussed in detail, it's on the agenda, it's in the open, I think, um, is, a, is a step forward. Scott, Jenny's just made the point, I mean, it's, it's, it's ultimately quite difficult for media auditors and you'd expect the media auditors to, to regulate this to an extent. Um, do, do you accept that? Is it, is it almost too difficult for media auditors to, to really crack down on this? Um, no, I don't think it's too difficult. And I think there's, I just want to say there's, there's, a, there's a difference between what we do, which we're a media advisory, so we advise clients on the best way to do things, and a media auditor in the traditional sense of the of the of the product now media auditors are are uh, a part of the a part of the problem and and it's large, largely ironic that those that we call media auditors that are there to validate um how well media is being bought um for that for their for their clients uh, via the agency don't really understand how media is bought and sold so again for a while we've we've always been quite comfortable with the idea that you know, agencies can manage media audits and they can do that pretty comfortably on a, on a day-to-day basis. But now that we've got to a more sophisticated way of, of trading, you know, they're still stuck in legacy forms of, of measurement. So it's sad that they haven't invested the time into understanding this world. But yeah, they're not the solution. Um, the solution to fixing this issue absolutely firmly sits with advertisers demanding the change themselves and them taking the responsibility and control and and setting up the rules of engagement with their partners um, on how their money is spent. Um, it's quite a strong assessment of um, media auditing. I mean, are some better than others? Some are better than others. It's, uh, it's as I say, it's it's not so much a problem actually just of the media auditors. It's the it's the criteria which people measure the success of media. So whilst we talk about effectiveness and sophistication in that area and you know, moving towards the, the best possible attribution and understanding value from media. Many clients are still targ- judging the success of media on the price output, the, com- the price, the index price input in, a, in an Excel spreadsheet as run by a media auditor. That is, that's fine. And it's a piece of hygiene, but it doesn't solve, it doesn't solve the issues that we're talking about today, because what it does, is it provides kind of a firewall from which things to operate behind. In fact, Delivering greater price is a piece of marketing that makes these proprietary products run. I will get you cheaper media if you just wave away your rights in this area. If you just don't look over here, it's a it's a problem. And you know, media auditors are, are they do great work and there's some good people in those businesses, but they absolutely need to step up and um, and 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 help their help their clients. Jenny, how much of a concern is this? Particularly, you know, we're speaking at the end of March. We've had a year of um, coronavirus, three big lockdowns, really tough time for the industry as a whole. Um, how 
much do clients worry about this in the context of am I being ripped off? Am I not getting what I'm paying for? I'm not seeing full transparency over my my media buying. How much of a concern is this among clients that you speak to? I think, you know, I think smart clients are concerned and I think, you know, the clients are losing um as a, as a consequence of of all of these practices that we're talking about. Um you know, I disagree with Scott slightly in that you can sort all of this out with your con- with a solid contract with your media agency because I think contracts can only control what your media agency does on your account and sometimes you're giving sometimes you know clients or a pitch stage or something a media agency is given contradictory objectives so somebody needs to try and break the cycle you know if clients are too focused on getting cheap media as Scott's alluded to or cheap media fees or all all of that, it just drives the behaviour in media agencies. It shouldn't drive that behaviour, in my view. That's up to the agency to actually work out what they're on this planet to do. But it does drive that some of that bad behaviour. I don't subscribe to this, you know, it's the client's fault they've driven the agencies to it. I really don't subscribe to that personally. Clients always need media agencies and media agencies uh, will always need clients. So it really is about how we can work together for a more sustainable and, and long-term future oh well that that's an interesting point about um how much clients and agencies need each other and so much um, media is now bought digitally via online platforms often direct without agencies uh frankly um this this kind of um i get the impression scott is this is this behavior maybe forced by that that context of um you know offline budgets actually taking up less of the overall media budgets media agencies essentially aren't able to uh have the same margins as they were maybe five years ago is that what's led to this this increased uh, practice of inventory reselling no i think it's you know on the whole there's there's you decide your own commercial model as a, as an agency you decide how you're going to make money and how you position the value that you add to any client you know and you know some of the things they do is yeah buy media but media agencies do a load of other really good stuff that is valuable to clients and how you productize that and, and, and demand fees and, and fair value for that is, is up to you. The bit that we're kind of talking about here is just because you can't make that work or you need to give things away doesn't mean you should go start doing things that aren't necessarily in the best interest of your clients as a whole, i.e. reselling media in, in the way that we've described. So now I don't think that the movement to digital or even the, the little bit, the bit of housing that's happening is, is causing this. It's always existed. It's just being scaled and scaled and scaled and, you know, Take control of your commercial model and um, and be brave in that and, and believe in the good work that you do. Okay, so what's your what's your advice to clients, Scott, for for marketers who are listening to this? Um, bearing in mind Jenny's point just now about how um you know um it's not just about contracts. What about in your day to day interactions with your current agency, for example? What would you advise these marketers to do? No, I think you're right. I, I, I agree with I agree with Jenny, and it's not a it's a it's not as simple as putting a contract in place. It's multi layered. So yeah actually the contract and commercial model you put in place is is vitally important and you should review that you you absolutely should but also you know being that things are more complex now and being that things are more there's broader opportunities for advertisers to 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 use media as as a fuel for growth is that they just need to spend time taking control understanding investing in their own talent and then from there picking the right agencies to to work with in, in in the right way and so it's multifaceted and, you know, working with a media agency should be like working with your own internal teams and you should invest as much time in your agency as you do in your own teams. And I think if you do that, 
you'll set yourself up better for success. And um, just one, just one more point on this, Jenny. Do you think clients, when they're reviewing uh, their media agency relationships, do you think that there should be more of an emphasis on this issue, if I can call it transparency? To use one word for it. I think most media pictures that you that we um, get will have transparency as part of the brief. So that will always be, you know, the commercial model is always part of um, the client's decision making in terms of when they select their agency. Um, but where it does start to become a little bit contradictory is where, you know, a client will ask you for your, you know, planning excellence, your planning tools, your strategic excellence, your econometrics, your all the smart strategy thing. And then at the end of the brief, there's a Excel spreadsheet that says, what rebates do I get at the end of the year? And I kind of think, well, why do you need the planning tools if you're going to, if you're going to allocate media based on where the rebates are going to come at the end of the year? Because they're two completely contradictory things. Either you passionate about your you know the the planning process the insight that goes into the planning the planning work the recommendations the getting the most effective media plan or you want a media plan that drives rebates because rebates or resetting inventory etc it's it's not the same you know from every single media owner every single supplier you go to it benefits always the weaker suppliers in the market so if you're a weaker supplier in the market funny enough you're going to offer agencies a bigger rebate in general because that gets you onto a plan that you might not otherwise justify being on and we haven't really spoken about um traditional media owners themselves uh, the tv broadcasters for example um what more can they do in the whole mix of this you know we we we, we know that there are there are deals that are done you know jenny mentioned rebates just now uh, it's not just tv newspapers for example as well over the years what more can they do to make uh, this process more transparent scott they're they're in a they're in a difficult position themselves as as everyone in this in in this position but i think you know i guess what media have to do is really think about who their client is um and it's true that their clients are the agencies it's true that their clients are the advertisers but you know they I think the balance is sometimes wrong and the priority should be to the advertisers who are ultimately spending the money and, and, and supporting their business directly. So that's a very easy thing to say. But unfortunately, the, the majority of media owners, including the major broadcasters, are not really in a strong enough position anymore to, to truly challenge the major, major groups on, on, on a direction of travel. So they make gives in order to, for their own wider benefit. You know, and that's not that's disappointing, but that that is the way it is. So, you know, in the UK market, agencies are are all powerful, and in particular, two or three of the groups pretty much decide what happens in, in uh, how much money each media owner is going to going to get that year. So, there's only so much influence they actually have, um, and it probably does dilute a little bit every every deal season. Jenny, what do you think? What more can media owners do? I think. The impact that this um, has on media owners, I think there's a number of things at play. I think this ecosystem, if you like, does reward weaker players. It also makes it much harder for new entrants. So if an agency has a deal in place or an inventory position in place with it would be with legacy media owners where they've got history of spending, it makes it really hard for new entrants um, to break through that. Um, but I think the end point, again, going back to advertisers and clients and the effectiveness of advertising, is a lot of these behaviours are actually making the cost of your media to a client more expensive. So it's actually making the, the total cost. Clients are paying a gross cost, right? They're pay, paying, including all of this other um, cash that's swilling around in the system. 
So clonazepam and gross costs for this media. And so when you end up with a econometric model or you end up with some you know, proper analysis in terms of what's worked and what's driven your business at the most cost-effective way, your channel is likely to be, has been artificially inflated because of all of this behavior. Media owners and particularly the kind of market leading media owners really need to take a longer term view and really need to think about and understand, get a better understanding of what the impact of artificially inflating the cost of your media and losing control of your own sales point is doing to marketing effectiveness. Yeah, it's true. And I think that's, that's the, not many people are winning in this, in this, uh, in this ecosystem, because you say that the positioning of some of these products and of inventory reselling is I'm giving you better value. I am taking risk. You're going to get a better price. And it's not true. Uh, the truth is that you're paying more than you otherwise would have done because the deal's done. So it should be passed on at that at that deal rate. And that money being taken out by the middlemen could otherwise be given to uh, invested in content by the by the broadcasters or other media owners, or indeed taken back as a saving or or indeed reinvested into other media. So this sort of tax that's happening in the middle is just meaning that, yeah, media is, is more expensive than it otherwise would be. And that's the probably the myth that um, needs to be um, dispelled in, in this, this clever marketing that, that goes on. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening, dear listener, wherever you are. Thanks to Jenny Bigham, Scott Moorhead and Maisie McCabe for joining me this week. Uh, we may not have a full episode next week because of the Easter break, but we should be able to, at the very least, send you a little audio-shaped treat next week, nevertheless. So look out for that. This episode of the Campaign Podcast was edited by Lindsay Riley and Campaign Magazine can be, of course, found online at campaignlive.co.uk. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe and leave a review, maybe. Goodbye, stay safe, and hope you can join us next week.